Let's take our Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 2. So we talked about the love that was born at Christmas. The love that was born at Christmas. Obviously very familiar passage as we think about the birth of Christ. In a moment we're going to see a video clip from the Nativity that talks about how this baby was born just like any other baby would be born because Jesus was 100% man. But he wasn't just man, he was a king who came and wrapped himself in human flesh and become, became a child. That's what's different about our king and the one that we serve. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because... There was no place for them in the inn. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, we're counting down the days till Christmas, about five days left. And as we think about that, I hope that as you go through this season, we can reflect on many of the gifts that we want to give or reflect on the gifts that we've received. But if we're honest and we think about it, very few of us can recollect what we got last Christmas, right? I mean, if you think about it, unless it was something really, really important. There was a story about a husband and a wife, and they were out to the mall doing some Christmas shopping. And uh, the husband wandered off while the wife was in a particular store, and she couldn't find him. So she got on the phone, and she said, uh, she called him up and said, where are you? And he says, well, do you remember that store about 10 years ago, a jewelry store where we stopped in? And you found this beautiful, beautiful necklace. And I said, at that time, we couldn't afford it. But if I ever have money down the road that one day I would buy it for you? And breathlessly, she said, yes. And he says, well, I'm next door in the donut shop. Could you go to the car and come and pick me up? <laughs> she thought she was going to get this great gift. And yet, all of her feelings and emotions were subsided. In that moment, well, the world that Jesus entered into so long ago was a busy, bustling place. People were coming into town. They were trying to find a place to, to, to uh, register and to give their taxes and to be part of the census and to find a place to stay. And Bethlehem was about three miles or so from Jerusalem, but yet it had very few places to stay. And so they were overrun. And as we prepare for our celebration in the midst of a busy time, in the year of the pandemic, I believe Jesus would want us to have a big celebration. So I hope whenever it is this week or in the next week or two that you do have that big celebration and you break out the eggnog and you break out the Christmas cookies and you have the big feast and you open all the presents. Don't forget to keep Jesus at the center of it all. And I hope that you spend some time in that celebration reflecting or reading the Christmas story as a family, as you gather together. And so, as you do that, we want to remind us that each one of us, we must revel in God's revelation of love that was given to us on this Christmas morning. 
And that's what we want to focus on. So turn your attention to the screens as we see a very vivid picture of, of from the nativity story about what it must have been like uh, to find out what it would have been like to see the Son of God birthed in a stable. Let's watch. Thank you, Bonnie, for that. So that gives you a, a little vivid picture. Can you imagine? Many of you women have given birth and the pain of childbirth, but also the joy and the celebration after the fact. I want to encourage you to take out your outline as we think about it and unpack this story a little bit. The love of God is generous. The love of God is generous. We're going to look at three aspects of God's love 
today. We could spend all day talking about different perspectives of his unconditional love and merciful love. We're going to look at just three of those today. The love of God is generous. Jesus left the very throne room of heaven to come to earth and identify with us. Think about it. He is really the first missionary. He left what was his comfort, angels around him serving him, worshiping him, and he left it to go to a strange foreign land, a land that he had created, obviously, but to learn a language and to speak and to minister to people at their point of need. What was his purpose in coming? Well, that famous uh, uh, priest from yesteryear, St. Augustine, he said this, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man, Christ Jesus, became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you're able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. Let's think of the tension in that stable that night. First of all, Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, but not yet married. And yet Mary was pregnant. The next thing that strikes us as strange is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of all places, it was just a little suburb. It was uh, not very significant. It was close to the royal city of Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was so small, as we said, it couldn't even accommodate all its visitors. And since the child was to be born the king of the Jews, why wouldn't he have been born in Jerusalem instead, the capital of the nation? But no, most shocking of all was, what was the child, why was the child born in the stable? God could have arranged for him to be born anywhere. He could have created a place for him. He could have snapped his fingers and created a hospital room with antiseptic and, and antiseptic and all the needs that she would have for going through labor with doctors and nurses at the beck and call. But yet he chose to allow this little one to be born in a stable. What an unlikely place for a king to be born. And after a difficult journey, think about it. She had to travel 70, 80 miles Sometimes walking, maybe on a donkey, we don't know for sure. But the stable's the last place that a caring husband would want her pregnant bride-to-be to give birth. Well, the nativity scenes that decorate the landscape during Christmas season are something less than accurate. None of them smell like a real stable. Can you imagine they had to move around the droppings of the animals to try to get her as clean of a place as possible to give birth and then to lay down this little newborn baby. And then they put that little baby in a feeding trough that might have had saliva from animals. Very, very unsanitary place. But we don't fully understand the embarrassment Joseph must have felt to watch his wife go through this pain in these surroundings. The son of God deserved much better. Why then did God choose a stable? Well, first of all, God selected Mary and Joseph to become his earthly parents. They were very young. Mary could have been 13 or 14. Joseph, maybe 15 or 16. But they were moral. They were upright. They were righteous people. They lived for God. And so that is one of the reasons that God chose them, selected them, this unmarried virgin, so that the world would always know that Jesus is both God and man. Secondly, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the vow God had made to send the world a king who came from the line of David. Furthermore, there was an evil, paranoid, non-Jewish king sitting on the throne of Israel at the time who killed every person who threatened his power. He killed his wife. He killed three of his sons. 
And now, as we'll see later in the story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, next week we'll talk about how he even decided to kill all the firstborn males in Bethlehem so that the threat to his power would be abated. And here's why Jesus was born in this stable. It was to ensure that we would always know that he came for all of us, from the lowest to the greatest. Had he been born in a palace, the poor would have always felt left out. But Jesus told us that he came especially for the downtrodden, for the poor, for the down and out. Jesus read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to explain at the beginning of his ministry why he came to earth. It's recorded in Luke's gospel, but it's a prophetic reading from Isaiah. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Of course, Jesus did come for the wealthy people as well, but God had a great heart, as we said, for the downtrodden, for the suffering people of the world. We also have to remember that just being human was an enormous condescension on Jesus' part. Jesus was God and always remained God, but he added humanity to who he is in order to build a bridge between us and God. Perhaps the closest illustration that we can give here on earth is that of an earthly king who sets aside his royal robes and puts on the clothes of a peasant much like in Mark Twain's book, The Prince and the Pauper. He didn't cease to be king just because he was wearing a poor man's clothes. He simply was a poorly dressed king. Jesus laid aside his heavenly robes and rights and clothed himself in humanity, just as the prince did in Mark Twain's novel. Think about it. Jesus had always lived in a perfect environment, surrounded by perfect love and absolute purity. He always lived in total freedom with no restrictions, no restraints upon his power, upon his abilities. He had always had, uh, had been able to speak and the universe could be go into existence or uh, do anything that he desired or ask angels to do. But now he limited himself to the body of a vulnerable infant boy in a very dirty stable. He did it because he loves you. He did it because he loves me. Because he loves all of his creation unconditionally. And he desires for all men to be saved and have a relationship with God the Father. Here's how the Bible describes it. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2 if you would. Philippians chapter 2. We touched on these verses last week. But we're going to unpack them a little bit. As we think of this amazing birth of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2. Paul said this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude of humility, if at all possible, like Jesus displayed. Verse 6 in Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what do these verses teach us? Well, as you look through these, verse 6 says, He was and remained true God. He remained the true God. Second of all, he, in verse 6, it says he chose not to selfishly grasp his privileges to God. He chose instead to divest himself of his rights in verse 7. He relinquished his dignity, but not his deity. He hid his glory inside his humanity. He surrendered his riches, living as a poor carpenter. He restrained his power willingly. He became fully human in verses 7 and 8. And he humbled himself in verse 8, even in verse 8, dying the most despicable death known to man at that time. Think of it this way, that he put his glory on hold. You know, we get a phone call, and we're talking to somebody and our cell phone, and then we get another call, and we have to put somebody on hold or wait, and their name's still there, right? And they're waiting for you to come back to them. Well, guess what? Jesus put his glory on hold, on hold all the time that he was here. Now, there were times that he did push the button and bring his glory and display it. We think of when he was in the Garden of Eden, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he was there and the soldiers came and they were about to, to arrest him. It tells us in John chapter 18 and verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He allowed his glory to be revealed for that moment. But for most of his life, all of God's limitless power and love was compressed into the form of one little infant boy. Why? So God would exalt him back to the highest place in heaven, as it says there in verses 9 and, 9 and 10 and 11. That he would be lifted up. He would be the high priest that every name in heaven and earth and under the earth would bow before him when he comes back the second time. Jesus first had to suffer, and then he would triumph over death. He would triumph over sin. He would triumph over Satan and become our high priest, exalted to the right hand of God, and he's there praying for you and I at this very moment. So, too, we have to endure to the end. You and I, we are not to grow weary in well-doing or become faint-hearted. We have to find joy when things are not going our way. We face persecution. Look at what Hebrews chapter 12 says on the screen here. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that it set before us. Notice, that's setting the scene for us to understand what's going on. And then looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think about what Jesus endured in his humanity in limiting himself. And the Bible says that the, he came into the world and the world knew him not. Think about that. He created the world and they did not even recognize who he was, nor did they want to. It says there in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, hey, endure to the end. 
Be strong. Be filled with joy. Look to the perfecter and the finisher of your faith, who is Jesus Christ. When that first cry was heard in the stable of Bethlehem and into the care of Mary and Joseph came a wrinkled, blood-covered little baby, the universe reached its turning point. For the first time, the God of all creation, who before had only been heard, could now be seen and touched, and he walked among his creation. All that he was as God now occupied human flesh. He was approachable, he was available, and he was vulnerable. Well, on that night in the stable, Mary and Joseph were filled with love for this little infant as any new parents would be. But they could hardly imagine how this little boy loved them. His love for them would reveal itself most dramatically when he would go to the cross and die for their sins and for the sins of the world. The stable hints to us about the love of God, but the infant lying in the manger would make this love crystal clear. It says in 1 John 4, 9, in this... The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There's an amazing truth here. God initiated the relationship with us. That's the exact opposite of all the other religions of the world. Religion is man seeking God, and Christianity is God seeking man. Very unique among all the world religions. God desired to have a relationship with us. He saw our sinfulness and he did something about it so that we could connect with him. This is his amazing, amazing love. So here's a couple things to remember. God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing you can do. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you fully. You don't have to earn his love. The price that was paid at Calvary is enough. There's nothing more we can do, but we receive that gift and realize that God loves us. And there's some of us in this room or maybe watching online that at times you wonder, how could God love me because of some of the things I've done in my past or I've done recently? Or maybe I've just sinned too much that he can't love me anymore. But the Bible does not teach us that. And just remember that God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He loves you for who you are. You cannot persuade God to love you more because his love is absolute. And although God hates sin, his love for us as sinners is so absolute that he sent his one and only son to die for us while we were yet sinners. John tells us that God is love. This means that love is the very essence of God. It's not just that God feels love or is loving, which he is, certainly. It's that the very nature of God is love. Love does not exist apart from God. It's actually impossible for us to imagine a love like this. The Apostle Paul prayed that his readers would be able to just begin to get a glimpse, to get a little bit of their arms around the immensity of God's love. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 that you, being a believer, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow, that's a meaty, meaty statement, a great set of verses to meditate upon, to think about how vast God's love is. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
shows you how generous God's love is. In 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The King James says, has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So here's our application after a very long first point. How are you displaying generosity outside of your family with someone or others this Christmas season? How are you displaying some of that generous love that God has poured out in your life in the lives of others? Maybe it's just giving someone a Christmas card or going to your neighbors and dropping off cookies or for some of us who rang the bells for the Salvation Army. Lots of practical ways that we could show our generosity even in the days still leading up to Christmas. God wants us to know that he went the extra mile, not thinking about himself, but only of us when he left heaven to come to earth. Another aspect of God's love today is the love of God is compassionate. God's love is compassionate. God's love is grace-filled. Grace-filled. God knows everything there is about us because he creates each and every individual life. In, in Psalm 139, it says, very familiar verses, For you, God, form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This is why we believe that at the point of conception, a person is a human being. We believe in the sanctity of life because God is knitting and putting together in a mother's womb, specifically a created being that's unique and different from any other individual who's ever lived or ever will live. God knows that we are frail, though, and human and weak, and we need him to make it in this life and in the life to come. I like to lean on Psalm 103 sometimes when I think about my weakness. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows who we are. He knows that we're weak and we're bent toward giving into temptation from time to time. He knows uh, where we're most vulnerable in our lives. He knows when we hurt. He knows our heartaches. He knows that we're sinners and that we fall prey easily to temptation. But that's why he shows us mercy. That's also why he gives us grace. He's also slow to be angry with us. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. God's love is grace-filled, but it's also grace-led. God's love is grace-led. There's past grace, there's present grace, and there's future grace. Each and every day when we wake up, he gives us a new measure of this grace. Just for that 24-hour period, remember Jesus said, don't be anxious for tomorrow in Matthew chapter 6, for the troubles of today are enough. 
And so we wake up every morning and we walk in this, this segment of grace for that day. That grace is what leads us ultimately to making us more like Jesus Christ. Lately, I've been thinking about this in my life. How can I make it easier for Jesus to transform me, to sanctify me, to make me more like him? And it always goes back to obedience. It goes back to doing what God says that I should be doing. If we keep his commandments, we show our love to him. And it makes it easier for him to transform us and make us into his image. That daily grace helps us to live life, a purpose-filled life, an abundant life. That grace that we get every day helps us make decisions, to be filled with joy despite the circumstances that are around us. To know we're walking in the Spirit because the Spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit within us to do the right things. Grace helps us to walk in the Spirit, to have the right attitudes in the midst of good news or bad news, disappointments or celebrations. We also, though, have to be careful that we don't mistake God's grace and patience toward us as apathy on his part or permissive in allowing our sin to be ignored. That's where many non-believers are today. And even some Christians, they believe I can do whatever I want because I walk in grace and, you know, God's just simply going to forgive me. And he will. But they're misinterpreting God's holding back judgment as if the judgment will never come. And they're in for a serious major wake-up call at some point. God will bring his judgment to bear in his own time and way. But God loves us so much he doesn't want to see anyone perish or face eternal destruction. He wants the very best for us, and since he created us, he knows, and he wants to show us his will to carry out what is the very best in our lives. That's why he brings trials into the lives of believers, and sometimes they're there to uh, take off some of the, the dross, to polish this beautiful jewel, to make us in the image of Christ. Sometimes it's to discipline us, to nudge us, back on the right path where we need to be. But his kindness brings unbelievers and believers to repentance. So don't presume on the grace of God. Philippians, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, And do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's grace is given not to be presumed upon, but to cause you to love him and to turn away from your sin. So our application here is, are you presuming on God's grace or living in humility because God is bestowing his grace on you daily? That's a good question for us to ask. Are we just uh, taking it for granted? Or are we humbled by the fact of that grace that we live in each and every day? God loves us so much more than we could ever imagine. But that love came at a very high price that began on that Christmas night. Our last point today is this. The love of God is sacrificial. Sacrificial. We need to ask ourselves a few questions. Was it hard for Jesus to leave the comforts of heaven? To have everything he needed at his beck and call? And to come down and be rejected and die a horrific death on the cross? Was it hard for a Jewish carpenter to go and ask some unlearned, unruly, uneducated fishermen to come and follow him? Did he really want to confront that woman at the well about her lifestyle? 
Did he really feel at ease while he sat down and ate meals with the tax collectors? Was he comfortable talking in front of large crowds? How was he around those who were paralyzed, who had leprosy, who were blind and the mute? Jesus left the comforts of heaven to show and reveal the love of God to a world in desperate need of a relationship with the Father. And he did it for each individual alone, not just for the untold masses of people. Jesus was individually and still is individually involved in many people's lives. He did preach. He did teach the crowds. But if you look at and read the Gospels, he spent most of his times with individual people and in small groups, especially his disciples, as he poured into their lives. John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. God gave us his very best so that we could have connection to God. He held nothing back. He gave his very best, especially as we think of Christmas. In 1 Corinthians 15, For as by one man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. God gave us his very best so that we could care for others because of his love for us. As God pours out his love in our lives, we're to be the conduit of that love to others. We're to be that pipeline. We're not to hoard that love. We're to lavish it on others, point people to the one who can give them all the love that they've been searching and looking for in their lives. Our application here is, are you sharing the sacrificial love that God has displayed in your life with others this Christmas season? Are you sharing that sacrificial love that God has displayed in your life with others this Christmas season? Jesus was born on that Christmas morning with the full purpose of dying for the world. He was born that night that he might die and rise again on the third day. Here's our key thought. Please take time to stop and reflect at this Christmas season the indescribable gift of love that came to us at Christmas. Take time to stop and reflect, to think about how amazing this story is, this simple story. If you read it, it's it's very basic, it's very easy to understand, but it has so many deep truths found in it. The question is, have you accepted the generous gift of love that's been given to us through God's Son, through Jesus Christ, for yourself this Christmas? 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And I hope you never get past the fact that before you even had an opportunity to think in your human mind about God, that God loved you. God loved you before you could love him. To be able to love others, you must know what love is and who the author of love is, and there's no real depth of love unless you have a relationship with the Father. And we find that when we look into the Word of God and we find the bad news. The bad news is that we are separated from God. We're sinners. We've done things wrong. We've broken his commandments. We've decided to run life our own way. We decide to be the driver in the steering wheel of our car and to steer life the way we want it to go. But that's not what God wants. God has a different plan for our life because he made us and he has a unique purpose for us. And so he sees us in our sin 
And he says, I'm going to send my son Jesus to come and to live on this earth and to reveal myself to the world. Remember, it says in John 1.14, he came full of grace and truth. And as he revealed himself, obviously the biggest focus was his demonstration of love on the cross when he died to pay for your sins and my sins by the shedding of his blood. And when we at Christmas time, for the first time in our life, come to a place and admit that we're sinners and that we're in need of a savior, that we can't make it into heaven on our own merits and our own abilities. And we trust Jesus as our savior and what he did at the cross, his finished work. And we turn away from our sins and know that he rose again to give us the gift of eternal life. When we accept Christ into our lives in that way, then we have the most precious gift that we can receive at any Christmas here on earth. And I hope that you have done that. I hope everyone in this room has had that time where they've crossed that line of faith and accepted Jesus as Savior. Are you living in humility because of God's compassion towards you? Worshiping him? Our walkout song today is going to be, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. It talks about adoring him. As we sing, we sing adoration to him. Are we walking in confidence with him that he's the child of the, that we're children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Are we trusting in his promises? Are we being filled with his grace and being led by that grace? Are we turning away from our sin because of the love that he continually shows us? And then are we sharing the generous, compassionate, and sacrificial love with those around us who need it most? I draw your attention to these questions at the bottom of your paper there to ponder in this week of Advent. Are you taking time this week to somehow deeply reflect on the love of God displayed in the manger? Think about that. Second of all, how are you showing generosity in this Christmas season of 2020 beyond your family and friends? It's a bigger challenge this year with COVID, right? We gotta be more creative. We gotta find ways to do that. And number three, are we making any sacrifices of love for others this Christmas season? What can you do? Set aside time to have a, a Zoom meeting with someone from your extended family. Or take time and write out Christmas notes in your Christmas cards or whatever it may be. What are some things that you could do to show that sacrificial love to others this Christmas season? Or share the good news of the gospel with those you know in your family that still haven't made that decision for Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the fourth week of Advent as we focus in on the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that was poured out for us, that's being poured out on a daily basis. If we look around in our lives, we can see your compassion, your generosity, your sacrificial love on our behalf. Lord, so many times you show mercy toward us that we don't get what we deserve. And many times you show us grace, give us things that we don't deserve. Lord, help us, fill us with a love for you that we might display that love toward others around us in generous, compassionate, and sacrificial ways. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.